Kids can head to the back. Yep. Good morning again. Um, so it's a joy and a blessing. Um, blessing. Blessing. So it's a joy and a blessing to be with you all. Um, let's just pray as we transition to the sermon time. Father God, we thank you this morning that you are good. We thank you this morning that you are healer. We thank you this morning that you are Lord. Pray now that as we listen to your word and your scripture and let it be words from you. Help us this morning to know that the God who is good heals us, that the God who is good carries us through every sea, that God who is good is powerful enough to make any kind of darkness tremble before his name. Your holy and precious name, amen. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to 1 John 3. Um, I'll be reading verses 19 and 24. They'll also be up here in the front. Um, this has been fun going through 1 John. I've never, hopefully in the future, I'll preach through books of the Bible a little quicker. Um, but it's been fun because I've had time to, in between each, so you just really get to dwell. And one of the things that's fascinating about our passage this morning is there's something I missed for years. You know, last time I was up here, I shared about how this is my favorite chapter in the Bible. And I'm excited to share this because I feel like God taught me something new, even more new, even though I've been in First John 3 for about a year. Um, let's read scripture. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts and rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything that we ask, because we keep his commandments, because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. One of the things that's interesting that John does in this portion, and again, remember when we read scripture, it's kind of very, very helpful that we have chapter and verses, but when John was writing, it wasn't the same breakdown, right? Like this was just a couple thousand years ago when we started to put the Bible together, we said chapter and verse would be nice. I don't know if you've ever seen the old parchment. They wrote all in capital letters with no punctuation. So chapter and verses are a good thing, right? Um, but I think John's real portion here is not the whole of chapter 3. I think it's actually chapter 3, verses 4 to 24. And one of the reasons I think about that is because John uses something called inclusio. And inclusio is kind of um, bracketing. is the idea that you will put your most important point in the beginning, and then you'll repeat it again in the end to make sure to hear it. Um, it's kind of how like growing up my aunt would tell me stuff you know like make sure you cut off the lights before you go to bed and she would say it again right before she went to bed right inclusio so she says at the beginning says at the end now the two major points that John uses as his inclusio to bracket here are things we've talked about before the first one is he talks about abiding and living in God and one of the things I love about what John does here is a lot of times when we think about abiding and living in God we think about like stuff that we strive to do but John makes the point over and over in this passage that abiding and living in God is wonderful because God lives in you, right? John releases you from the burden of having to be perfect, the burden of having to do it right because he says, God's working on your behalf. Not only do you have to try to live in God, he doesn't have to try, he already lives in you, right? So he goes and says, you know how we know this? Because first of all, from the beginning, we believed in Jesus. That's how the relationship started for us. But those of us who have read scripture all our lives, we know that the relationship started even before we were born, God believes in us. How do we abide? We believe in Jesus. The second one, he says, our responsibility then is to fo follow his commands. It's fascinating, but one of the things I, I've been really almost like, 
again, arrested and, and stuck by is that God will hold me accountable for everything he's ever taught me. Right? Like a lot of times we make the Bible really, really complicated and there's great deep mysteries. But one of the ones that befuddles me even to this day is that everything I know I'm supposed to be doing. If God says love my enemies, I don't have a choice. I'm supposed to love the people who don't love me back. If God says shine your light into darkness, I don't have a choice. I'm supposed to shine my light into darkness. If God says this world is broken and I want to heal and I want to use you to help put it back together, I don't have a choice. Everything that God's taught you, he holds you responsible for doing. And that's why John says, if you want to keep abiding, believe in Jesus, follow his commandments, live by the Spirit. And I think a lot of times I grew up hearing, live by the Spirit, live by the Spirit, live by the Spirit. And I didn't really understand it until God one day, I think we're singing, I surrender all. And God just said, Hank, surrender. If you want to know what it means to live by the Spirit, just surrender. It means that every morning when you wake up, you say, not, your, not my will, but your will be done. It means every single day, every single interaction, you're living by the Spirit. You're asking God into every single situation. We get so good at having our relationship with God be on a need-to-know basis, right? We get so good at, at bringing God in when we choose to. But surrender means he's in all the time. He abides in us, but we're letting him in. Surrender if you want to live by the Spirit. Then he also says, if you want to abide, you got to conquer this thing called sin. And we talked about Tim Shell, right? How, how God wants you to focus on sin is he doesn't want it to rule over you. That means that sin is not the master Jesus is. That means that every single one of us has to surrender that struggle to sin. That means that every single one of us has to not say, you know what, I'm just going to struggle with this my whole life. Because God is going to consistently say, today is the day of your salvation. And I've made you more than a conqueror. Surrender the struggle to sin, but know that God has equipped you with the community around you, with the Holy Spirit in you, with Jesus, his son, that you can conquer and rule over every sin. So that's the first part of this bracketing that he does. The second main point he makes, which we talked about, is this. And, and if you've ever heard me even speak for more than 20 seconds, it'll somewhat come out, right? Live in love like Jesus lived and loved. Jesus said, my commandment is for you to love one another. How will this world know I exist? By your love for one another. And to me, that's a responsibility. If this world doesn't know what God's love feels like, that's our fault. If this world doesn't know that there's a God, that's on you. Because God is doing his part. Are you? Love one another. And part of that love one another is, and I think a lot of us, especially my generation, I see this a lot, we're very good at critiquing the church and saying everything that's wrong with the church. But John reminds us that, hey, you're the church. So it's good to critique it all you want, but you need to be part of the team. You know, we're not fighting against each other. We got to link up with God and the spirit and fight together. It's not just about critiquing what the church is and what the church isn't because you are the church. It's great to critique institutions, but we're this organism. We're members of one another. I love that my knee doesn't critique me, and it works. But I also love that if something's wrong, my body goes to my knees. So there's got to be this, this symbiotic relationship where it's not just about all the things that are wrong. It's about how can we make it right? How are we loving the church? John says, you want to live in love like Jesus lived in love. Don't make it complicated. Make it simple. If Jesus do it, do it too. You know what's right. Do it. Lay down your life for your brothers and sisters. One of my greatest um, 
simple questions that kind of changed my life. Martin Luther King once said, you know, life's most persistent and urgent question is what are you doing for others? And I think if we talk about what it means to love one another, so many of us are really good at focusing on me and mine. So many of us are good at focusing on what God has for me. In fact, that's how we teach our Christianity, right? I go to scripture to see what I can get from it. I go to church to see what they can do for me. I go and have this relationship to see how I can grow. But there's nowhere in the Bible that Jesus says, God so loved me. There's nowhere that Jesus is, is, is only concentrating on what he can do for you. It's got to always be about us. It's got to always be about the world. And if you want to live in love like Jesus lived in love, you have to stop making it about you and make it about us. You got to stop making it about what you want and make it about what God wants. You got to stop making it about where you can grow and start asking how we can grow. And I'm not trying to put down the individual, but I'm just trying to tell you that when it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ, it's never about one it's always about all so that's our inclusio right he says this twice in 424 one I want you to abide in God because God's living in you and two I want you to live and love like Jesus lived and loved and I was trying to think of how like a visual picture of how to explain all of this and and I got a Philly cheesesteak I might lose a couple of you on this one, so you got to bear with me. I was going to do pictures, but now I was like, pictures don't do it justice. So I'm going to let you just use your imagination, right? Now, I said Philly cheesesteak, as in the cheesesteaks they make in Philly, right? Like, I think a lot of us who don't grow up in Philadelphia, we think Philly cheesesteak, and we think of that godforsaken steakums, which are from Reading, right? I remember one time my, uh, my, my mom, who's a great cook, actually, one of the best cooks probably in the world. Now, I'm not even saying that. Like, she really is. She does that well. But one day she decided to make steakums. And it's just like, mom, you have your lane. Like, make Liberian food, you know? Like, like stay there. You're really good. And, and I came home and I saw the steakums and I was like, you know what? I think I'm just going to, like, eat some water tonight. <laughs> now, for a lot of people, when you hear Philly cheesesteak, you think about it like a hot dog, right? Like, it's just like another sandwich. But I'm here to tell you that Philly cheesesteaks are the ones that are actually made in Philly, the good ones, right? And one of the things that make it good is what? It's the bread, Right? It's all about the bread. It's something we put in our water, and you can uh, maybe talk to some environmentalists and might tell you it's not all that good what we're doing with our water. But it's something we put in our water in Philadelphia that makes that bread delicious, right? But the bread is kind of like the inclusio, right? It goes on the top and is on the bottom. So you with me so far? We're building this sandwich, right? So the bread is your inclusio on the top and on the bottom. Now, a lot of us, you know, because we think a Philly cheesesteak is just another sandwich, we think about the fixings, right? We think about what we like in the Philly cheesesteak. We think about all the good things that go in there. And I think some of us even read the Bible this way, right? It's like, what do I like about the Bible? You know, what do I like in this passage it says to me, right? But again, a Philly cheesesteak doesn't have fixings, right? Like, you got the bread, and, and, and it's not a fixing because for it to be a Philly cheesesteak, it's got to have what? Whiz wit. That's it. Like, we don't have any other options, right? Now, apparently, there's some of you who make Philly cheesesteaks, and, and you think it's like there's other cheeses in the world, right? We do cheese whiz, right? Like, if you want a real Philly cheesesteak, there's no provolone and, and Swiss and jalapeno. Like, th those other cheeses don't exist, right? It's cheese whiz, right? And wit is onions, right? So they're not even fixings. They're literally part of the environment when you're putting together the sandwich. Like, you don't have a choice. If you're getting a Philly cheesesteak, it's the bread, your inclusio, and then you got your whiz wit, right? And then it's about the meat, right? Somebody said wrong, but hey, we'll talk later. We'll pray for you too. Um, then there's the meat, right? And the only thing I think about is, you know, I, I kind of jumped to that steakums point because it was like charring my memory, right? 
you got to get the meat. You got to actually get good quality beef, right? I'm sorry for all my vegans and vegetarians out there, but I'm from Africa, and in my family, we eat meat. So I would like to even say I'm a meat connoisseur, you know? Like, if you don't believe me, bring me some. I'll tell you whether or not it's good. But when I was thinking about how this Philly cheesesteak is relating to this passage, one of the things I realized is that for John, if the bread's the inclusio, that's the star of the passage. The most important thing in John, 1 John 3, 4 to 24 is you have to abide in God and let God abide in you. Right? And you have to live in love like Jesus lived in love. So if the bread is the star, the meat is the substance. Right? Like, that's what's going to keep us going today. And the substance of this message this morning is simply this. God is greater than our sin, and God is greater than our shame. God is greater than our sin, and God is greater than our shame. Amen? You see, you might have the bread, and it might be the star. You might have your whiz wit. But without any meat, you got no sandwich. So the substance of what we want to focus on is this simply thing, that God is greater than your sin. God is greater than my sin. God is greater than our sin and shame. In 1 John 3, 19 to 22, John reminds us of this, and he says, and I want you to listen again as you think about what it means that God is greater than sin and shame. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts. He knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything that we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. God is greater than your shame. God is greater than your sin. You know, John is again quoting Jeremiah and Jeremiah says, you know, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond all cure. Who can understand it? And John says, God can understand it. He's greater than your heart. He's greater than your shame. He's greater than the conviction he's greater than the sadness and he still loves you God is greater than your sin and shame God is greater than your sin and shame you know one of the things about sin and shame and 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 this morning we are going to talk about shame but I think one of the things that's fascinating about shame is it's one of those words that that we know about but I don't know if we always properly define it right so I want to make sure I get this right so I went to the American Psychological Institute because they got everything right over there Because I was trying to explain how shame kind of mixes in with embarrassment, kind of mixes in with guilt, right? And these three things kind of flow together. And we kind of sometimes do something that that I would, well, actually not me, because I went to the American Psychological Institute, that the American Psychological Institute would define as embarrassment, and we think that's shame, but it's not, right? And we think this is guilt, and we think that's shame, but it's not. It's just guilt, Right? So American Psychological Institute says shame is not embarrassment. Embarrassment is, you know, something that's awkward or, or brings you discomfort. Or maybe if you have this image of yourself and, and something that threatens that image or changes that image, right? So you think of the TV show when the cool kid comes home and has to introduce people to his parents, right? You know what I thought about when I thought about embarrassment? Believe it or not, I used to be a biker. Um, used to bike all around the city of Harrisburg. Loved it. Loved it until, you know, spring of 2008 when my bike was stolen. I was going to give the exact date and time, but the person might be here this morning. I don't want them to feel some type of way because I forgive you, I think. But I love this bike, and I used to bike everywhere, right? And one of the things about biking is, like, I just love, like, literally, not, some, some of you get this when you drive. I don't get this when I drive because I've lived in cities my whole life. Like, you just let your hair down and blow in the wind. That's how I felt on the bike. I felt free, right? Um, now, one day... I decided, you know, like, I think when you're like six or seven, whenever, how old you are when you decide to ride without hands, right? Well, when I was 22, 23, I decided, huh, 
How come no one rides without hands and while they're standing? Now, I know what you're thinking because you would fall and that'd be ridiculous, right? So I was like having this deep thought, right, in my quarter life, right? And not only was I having this deep thought, it was right in the middle of Strawberry Square. And not only was it in the middle of Strawberry Square, it was right in a lunch break when like everybody was coming out, right? So I'm on my bike and I'm going through and I was just like, I think I can do this. When I was a kid, I could stand on my bike. That's easy. I could ride without hands. That's easy. I'm going to stand without hands. And you know what happened, right? I tumbled forward, rolled a couple times, looked around. Everybody's like frightened but laughing and not knowing what to do. That's embarrassment. <laughs> now, shame, though, it's not embarrassment, right? There's no shame to my game. I got back on my bike and kept moving. I was like, I don't know you. But shame is not guilt either, right? Guilt is the, the feelings that you have. It's similar to shame because you have the same feelings, but it's the feelings you have when, when you do something bad, right? So an example of guilt might be, this may have happened, Shell, may have happened, I don't know. But it might have been one night this week where, you know, like our two-year-old has decided that, you know, staying in bed the whole night is for the birds, right? Like, not only do I have to come out of bed, I got to come out at least two to three times, right? Well, this one night, you know, Shell was out, you know, and it was just me and her, and we we're just hanging out, and and... It was past the two or three maximum, right? And she may have came down for the fourth time, and I may have just looked at her and said, you know what, let's just hang out. I may have let her stay up, and then I blinked, and it was like 10, 30, 11 o'clock. Like, I may have done that, right? And if I did that, that's something not really good. So that's guilt, right? Like, you do something bad, right? Um, there's a great speaker and author and, 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 and writer, well, same thing, by the name of Brene Brown, and she says that guilt is I did something bad. Shame is, I am bad. And that's kind of where we want to harp and park this morning, right? It's easy to, to mix up all these things, but, but guilt says, I did something wrong. Sin says, and shame says, I am wrong. And shame, lasting shame, when we think about it, it comes from maybe what's happened to us. It comes from maybe what we've done. It comes from maybe what we've had to live and suffer through. And I'm not here to demean shame and to say it's not important. I'm just here to say this morning that we cannot let shame get the last word. I'm not here to say that what you've been through and how you've struggled doesn't matter. But I'm here to say God knows your heart. God knows your shame. And God's greater than that shame. Because the thing about shame is I honestly believe this. Shame for too long has held us captive. Shame for too long has kept us in prison. Shame for too long has denied who we really are and who God wants us to be. Because shame, lasting shame, it accuses. Shame convicts. Shame imprisons. Shame lies to us. This lasting shame says you're stupid. You're a failure. You're a bad person. You're a fraud. You're not good enough. You'll never be good enough. You don't matter. You deserve this hurt. You're inadequate. You shouldn't even have been born. You're unlovable. And if this is what shame says, not only is it a lie, but it's from the father of lies. Remember, John keeps saying, if it's not of God, it's of Satan, it's from the devil. And what I believe in all my heart this morning is shame is Satan's great, big, unchecked weapon. We keep letting him beat us down with shame. We keep letting us keep us in prison. And Satan knows this. But we read earlier, 
1 Peter 5, 6 to 11. So I think a lot of us who grew up in church or come to church, we're aware of the big sins, the big temptations to stay away from, the big things to avoid, right? The growth that we need to do, but we keep letting Satan beat us down with shame. And we use this verse a lot to talk about people around the world that's suffering, but I guarantee you in this room, a lot of us are suffering from shame. A lot of us are suffering from shame. But this is what Peter says. Don't let it go unchecked. Be alert and of sober mind. Why? Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And there's so many of us that shame is devouring this morning. But Peter says, resist him. Stand firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. You're not the only one who's struggling with what you're struggling with. You're not the only one who's in this pit. One of the greatest pictures of God I've ever had in my life is this idea that where I am, there he is. If I'm in the pit, he's there with me. If I'm walking on the seat, I'm starting to slip, he's there with me. Because shame needs secrecy. Shame needs silence. Shame needs judgment. But this morning, I'm just here to say, if God's greater than our hearts, shame might need secrecy, but I think you need to make it known. Shame might need silence, but I think you need your voice. Shame might need judgment, but I'm standing with Jesus and I say, I think you need to be set free. Because sin might lie to you. Sin might say you're stupid, but you know what God says? I believe you're brilliant. Sin might say you're a failure, but God says you're only learning and growing. Sin might say <laughs> that you're a bad person, but God says you're forgiven and set free. Sin might say you're a fraud, but God says I will make you genuine. Sin might say you're not ever good enough, you'll never be good enough. And Jesus says, I came for you. Sin might say you don't matter. And God will say, my spirit lives in you. Sin might say you deserve this hurt. But God says you deserve freedom. Sin might say you're inadequate. And God says, how? You're the highlight of all my creation. I spoke the world into existence, but I fearfully and wonderfully made you. How are you inadequate? Because I have begun the work in you, and I will finish the work in you. Sin might say you shouldn't have been born. God says, I knew you before you were born. Sin might say you're unlovable. And God says, I have always loved you. I am always loving you, and I'll always love you. Amen? Shame lies. But if we truly believe that God is greater than our hearts, we need to realize that God has some truth for us that can break through this sin and shame. A couple weeks ago, when I was thinking about this passage, I was trying to focus on, on, on how do you give a set list to the musicians about this? And, and I kind of had a conversation with Esty, actually. I just threw a bunch of stuff out there. I was like, this is where I'm at, you know? He came back a couple days later, and he said, um... So I kind of think like the, the, the first point we need to do is just trust God. And I was like, huh, yes, 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 that's it, you know? So I was thinking about how to land this plane. I realized that what he said is right. 
if we want to conquer the sin and shame, right? The same way that, that John tells us to deal with sin, to not let it rule over us, right? It's the same thing we got to do with shame and not let it rule over us. And we got to come back to the foundation. And that's simply trust God. Trust God, your father, for he loves you. You know, that great theological masterpiece that I learned a lot of great things from about Jesus, the Lion King. There's a scene in The Lion King where Rafiki, you know, he goes back and he, he goes to find Simba, right? And if you notice, if you haven't watched it, it's been like 20 years, so it's ruined. Um, but he finds Simba, and after Simba's father died, he, he, he has shame. He blames himself. All, that, all the lies the shame tells him, he believes it. I'm not good enough. I shouldn't have been born. I killed my father. I'm not good enough, right? And Rafiki takes him back to the ancestors, you know, and, and, and he goes back and, and he's looking in this mirror. And, and most people think God sounds like Morgan Freeman. I think it's James Earl Jones, right? Lion King, right? But there's this wonderful scene in there where Mufasa, his father, he sees himself as he looked in the mirror. He sees not himself, but his father. And his father says what? Remember who you are. Remember who you are. And when I think about trusting God this morning, I think about breaking through shame, I want you guys to just go back to simply do this. Remember who you are and remember whose you are. Satan might lie about what shame can do with you, but you're still a child of God. Satan might say, Satan might say you're not worthy, but Jesus will always say, I came for you. And the joy of Jesus is he didn't just come one time. He's still coming today. He's still coming for you. The storms might be stormy and the, the winds might be blowing and you might be sinking. But praise God, we still have a God who reaches down and picks us back up again. Remember who you are, but also remember whose you are. You're God's child. How can you grow in trusting God today? We also got to learn how to trust Jesus. You know, there's a chorus a couple years ago, all in all, when I was in college, we sang this every time. Like every single worship service. There's a great line in there, right? Taking my sin, my cross, my shame, rising again, I'll bless your name. You're my all in all. Part of what we have to do is let Jesus take our shame away. Because when we hold on to it, it's like this poison pill that we just keep drinking and drinking and wondering what's wrong with us. We have to let Jesus be our all in all. We have to say, Jesus, this is how I feel. Jesus is where I'm at. Jesus is what I'm going through. Please take it away. And he wants to, but you have to let him. And the last one I would say is we have to trust the Holy Spirit. You know, I struggled for years. I was just like, how's David, a man after God's own heart? And how is he saying, take not thy my Holy Spirit for me? And my first understanding was like, yeah, man, I'm better than David. I'm better than David because the Holy Spirit lives in me, right? One of the things I've learned about shame, though, is that because, because shame needs secrecy and silence and judgment, it puts us in prison. And when we're in prison, we stop looking up and we start looking down. We're in prison, we stop remembering all the things that are true about God, and we start holding on to all the lies that Satan says is true about us. And what I realize is that what shame does is it makes you feel like God's not there. It makes you feel like you're on your own. It makes you feel like you can't go on. But what I want to tell you this morning is David said, take not the Holy Spirit from me. But what all we can say this morning is, God, I'm coming to you. This is how I feel. But God, please Never leave me or forsake me in this darkness. God, please, I'm in prison. 
set me free. God, please, I can't feel you right now. Give me a brother or sister to touch me so I know you're real. We got to start trusting the spirit as well. And that's the last thing that we need to do is we need to figure out who our community is. One of the greatest lies that America tells us is that we do this on our own, that our success is our own. But all of us in this room need each other. So my last thing, if you want to conquer shame, is who's your community? Who are you investing in? But who's investing in you? Who are you connecting with and who's connecting with you? Because like Bonhoeffer says in Life Together, you know, we can confess our sins, but if we've been Christians long enough, it'll feel like we're talking to the wall. But I'm telling you the truth this morning. When I confess my sin and my shame to my brother or my sister, I know that God is real. I know that he loves me. I know that he's there for me. Who's your community this morning? I'd like to invite the team back up. We're going to have communion this morning. And I think one of the beauties of communion, at least for me, is it gives you a chance to reset. It gives you a chance to focus not on the lies that Satan tells you, but it gives you a chance to focus on who God is and who he says you is. As we come to the table this morning, we get to leave our sin and shame behind. And we get to say, this is not just a feast or emblems. This is the body of Christ. This is the blood of Christ. And they were both freely and willingly given for me. The ushers will come up. We will have communion up front this morning. They will be dismissing you to the front row. We now invite you to this table, not because you must, but because you may. Come to testify, not that you are perfect, but that you sincerely love our Lord, Jesus Christ, and desire to be his true disciple. Come not because you are strong, but because you are weak. Not because you have any claim on heaven's rewards, but because in your frailty you stand in constant need of heaven's mercy and help. Now that the supper of the Lord is spread before you, lift up your minds and hearts above all selfish fears and cares. Let this bread and this cup be to you the witness of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit. Again, we invite you not to be a member of this church or, or even a brethren in Christ. If you love Jesus, we'd like to invite you to the table. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, which in the Jewish Passover feast is called the cup of blessing, and he told his disciples, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray together.